Welcome along to the Property Academy podcast by Opus Partners. I'm your host, Steve McKnight. I'm Andrew Nichol. And tell the show, we've got another case study Sunday, and we are so pleased to be joined by Emily, who joins us from Auckland. Emily, welcome along to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And the really cool thing about you, Emily, is you're only 27 and yet have owned part of an investment property for at least two years. Now, how does somebody so young get interested in investing in property? Yeah, uh, definitely an interesting story for us. It's definitely a family affair. We're very fortunate to have the Bank of Dad helping us out and getting us into that first investment property. So between myself, my younger brother and my dad, we invested in our first property, yeah, about three and a half years ago. And what did you buy? We bought a section and then we built a house on that. So a detached house with four bedrooms, three and a half bathrooms, and a double garage. And that's in Hobsonville in West Auckland. I can imagine that it'd be pretty popular out in Hobsonville because you've got a lot of apartments. You've got a lot of townhouses out there. And to have something with four bedrooms and three and a half bathrooms, I can imagine you'd, you probably wouldn't struggle to get tenants. No, not at all. I guess we kind of did it a little bit differently in that way in that my brother and I have lived in the house the entire time since we built it. So me and my brother were in a room each and then we rented out kind of as flatmates the other two bedrooms to help pay the mortgage. Oh, cool. So this is your first home for the both of you and then you've yeah. got flatmates in to use it as a, as a wee bit of a kind of kind of investment property there. Yes, exactly. It's kind of like an investment sense, but I guess to kind of hit the ground running and get started, me and my brother lived together in it and then, yeah, rented out those bedrooms. So that kind of helped pay the mortgage. And Emily, you mentioned the Bank of Dad. Was he the motivating force behind your decision to invest? Yes, absolutely. Dad is, I mean, being in the building industry for really long himself, being a project manager for residential housing, he is definitely in that kind of realm. So yeah, he was a big push for us. He kind of saw an opportunity when it came up. So he kind of got me and my brother kind of into gear to be in that mindset of getting something, yeah. And one thing you mentioned as well is that you guys are basically all in the building industry. So what do you do for a job and what does your brother do? Yeah, so as I said, my dad's a project manager for residential housing. Before that, he was a builder. My brother is an electrician and I am a town planner. So yeah, we're kind of a good little trio in that sense. (laughs) And with the build, who actually did the construction of your house? Yeah, so we went through my dad's building company that he works for, David Reed Homes. So it's a lot smoother process when your project manager is your dad. And <laughs> Not for we the workers. Able, yes, this is very true. Runs a tight ship. <laughs> and then obviously we we're able to cut costs with my brother doing all the electrical work and my dad coming in on the weekends, getting back on the tools into the building kind of thing. So, yeah. Wow. So that's quite the unusual set of circumstances for, for doing a build. In terms of actual numbers, what did the project cost you all up? Do you have any idea off the top of your head? Yeah. So in total, I guess we brought the section for 475 and then we built the house for 490 So in total, it was about 965 all up to build and purchase the section. And then with Dad's kind of initial deposit was the 200000 to kind of get us in the door and get the bank to accept our loan. So our loan was about 762000 
and I know that a lot of people listening to the show, especially first-time buyers, will be quite interested in, in how the cash flow works. So you guys started out with a mortgage of $762,000. What was your mortgage on that? Well, I guess we were lucky building in 2020. We were able to fit at 2.69. So but it was a very low mortgage for the first year or two. But at the moment, we're paying 4247 a month. And of that, you've got two flatmates in there. How much of that are they paying? So with our flatmates, I guess me and my brother is a round figure. We kind of like, we pay rent essentially to kind of contribute that each month. So me and my brother would pay 325 each a week. And then depending on the size of the room, for example, we have one in the master bedroom. She pays 350 a week. One of the smaller bedrooms is 250 a week. And that's including all expenses. So we kind of run it as an all-inclusive. That includes paying mortgage, paying the interest on dad's gift or donation that he gave us, and everything above rates, um, power, utilities, all that kind of thing. So that's kind of how we tend to run that. But we just break even in terms of all of the costs involved per month. Yeah, so if you're talking about between you and your brother plus your two flatmates, you're getting in about $1,250 a week, their rent plus your rent. So if you're thinking about it on a monthly basis, that's about $5,400. So after paying your mortgage, you've probably got about $1,200 a month, give or take, in order to pay those other expenses like your water, your power, any other services you're providing there. So that's a good kind of ballpark for anybody listening to the show. If you want to become a first-home buyer, but then also have flatmates in, you know, they're contributing roughly half towards your overall expenses of the household at the moment. Yeah. And Emily, having a mortgage of 765 grand, when you go in as a partnership and you're not in a relationship, so your brother and you going in there as brother and sister, often the bank will look at servicing as if you're both individually having to service that loan itself. Did you have that as a barrier? We actually didn't have any barriers at all. I guess one of the only barriers is that our mortgages with Westpac, they were the only ones that would take us, I suppose. So Mm -hmm. we kind of only had one option, but we didn't have any barriers in that sense, which is great. I don't know if that had to do with the cash deposit that we had. Perhaps we were on the lower end of the risk, but yeah, no issues, which was good. That's great. Did Did you use a mortgage broker? Yeah, we did. We had some advice from our mortgage broker, Jan, who kind of like kept us along the right track. Now, it's interesting. For a four-bedroom property, you guys built three and a half baths, which is quite a large number of bathrooms for a first home. And I wonder, did you specifically yeah. choose that number of bathrooms to make it a bit easier when you rent it out? So I'm imagining that you said one flatmate's in the master bedroom. I'm assuming they've got the ensuite. And maybe you and your brother share a bathroom and the other flatmate has their own one. Is that kind of the thought process there? I guess the thought process was it was always going to be kind of an investment property. Me and my brother are not going to live together for the rest of our lives, even though, touch wood, we get on really well. So that's been great, having that good relationship. So we kind of maximised the space that we had on the section. So the section's 321 squares. We did two-storey to maximise that again. And we kind of thought about how a house would function for a family in the future, for example. So I guess one of our thought processes is um, we have one master bedroom on the ground floor. Like you say, it does have an ensuite, And then the rest of the three bedrooms are upstairs. We kind of find that 
I guess me being in the resource consenting industry as well, we find that a lot of families live with their parents or have grandparents in the house. So we thought it was important for flexibility. You kind of have that option if you did have older people living in the house with you, they can stay at the ground floor, for example, as well as being quite a family-friendly space. Everything's really nice and open plan. The rooms are quite generous. And there's that other master bedroom upstairs, which also has an ensuite. So I think we were kind of gunning for a bit of flexibility with how future purchases could use the space. Yeah, I'm glad you said there are two master bedrooms because that was the thing that I was picking up, having one on the ground floor. And then as you said, typically you'd put the grandparents in there so they don't have to walk up the steps. But then if you don't have a a secondary master upstairs, you know, for the parents or, you know, the actually purchasing the home who generally they want their own suite as well. So that's where you might have something along those lines. So some good some good thinking there. And how difficult or easy has it been finding flatmates for this living arrangement? It's actually been really easy. Hobsonville is a really nice place to live in Auckland. And again, the house is brand new. It's all really nice and open plan. I think with finding anyone to live in your house, it's hit and miss with who you get and it's trial and error. So Over the last three and a half years, we've been really lucky to have a really low turnover. I guess it's a bit of a different situation rather than just having a flat. I mean, my brother and I own the house, so I guess there's that added element of, you know, we really want to respect the space and look after it because it is our investment. It's our hard work and my dad's hard work. So, yeah, I would just say trial and error, but we've got a really good bunch of people, so it works well. How does it work in terms of your dad's involvement? Say you sold the property tomorrow, what's kind of the plan there? Yeah, so I guess we kind of worked through it in a way that kind of a win-win situation for all of us. So as I said, dad was generous enough to gift us that initial 200000 cash deposit so me and my brother could get that foot in the door. I suppose in return, me and my brother have put the hard work and effort in maintaining, paying the mortgage, you know, it's our names that are on that mortgage. Whereas dad's kind of like a, almost like a silent kind of partner in the background. So when we do come to sell it, dad will get his deposit back plus any return on investment that we do get or any profit that we do get. So we've kind of split it into percentages. So I guess that's more of a private agreement that we have between us three which works quite well, and that's all signed off by the lawyers and things like that. So, yeah, that's kind of how we've worked it. So he'll get his percentage of the capital growth. So if there was $500,000 capital growth, he has a, let's say, a 20% share, he'd get $100,000 on top of his investment. Exactly right, yeah. Now, you mentioned that you and your brother aren't going to live together forever. So what is the long-term plan for this property? Are you going to sell it? Are you going to turn it into a rental Yeah, I mean, I guess there's lots of options, but I think we will look to sell it when the market is kind of picked back up and it's looking right over the next couple of years. I guess I've already kind of taken one more step in my journey. So I purchased a house this year with my partner a couple of months ago. So again, kind of in the background, me, my dad and my brother decided that it was the right time for me to buy a house. I'm kind of at that stage in my life where I want to purchase my first family home. So we were able to shuffle around the percentages in terms of the asset that we have together. So dad was able to take some money out and give to me. So he has more of a share in our investment property and I have less. So hopefully that makes sense. I feel like it kind of adds a bit more of a complicated 
layer to our situation, but I think it's a really good example of how things can really work for everyone as well. And where is that property? And do you live in it? You don't live in that now, though, right? So I moved out of the investment property that I lived in with my brother two two months ago, and I live in the property that I've just brought with my partner, and that is actually five minutes down the road in Hobsonville huh. Point. So I love I love that area <laughs> clearly. Yeah. So we bought a little walk up apartment, three bedroom, one point five bathroom for eight hundred and thirty. Now, one interesting thing about that, just for the listeners of the show, that would be quite interesting to think about is the really interesting bright line test implications. You see, a lot of people think that, well, if one person lives in it, then you get the main home exemption, but actually only the person living in it gets it. So now that you've moved out, as long as you and your dad have transacted at market value, any uplift on your share now is subject to Brightline, unless, of course, you sell it after your Brightline test is gone, which may be the case if we get a change in rules. And then same, same with your dad's share as well. That's just something really important to point out. I tell you what, one thing that's interesting is we've obviously got an article about the Brightline test on our website. That would be the most commented on article on the whole website. And people have the most interesting circumstances that are so out of the box at where the Brightline test can apply in a weird way. This is actually one of those examples as well. I think bringing the Brightline back to a two-year period is going to make it a lot easier for investors with these complex arrangements because let's face it, it's hard to buy a home now for yourself and often you do have someone else on the title, be it your brother or your dad or whoever it is in your situation. And now that you've moved out of your room, is that being just rented out at the rate that you were paying it? Yes, so that's been rented out to a couple because it was a master bedroom with an ensuite and we rent that out for $400 a week, including expenses. So you're telling me that you were charging your brother $325 a week for not a master bedroom with not an ensuite, but you had it for the same price. You drive a hard bargain, Emily. I know, it's the older sibling privilege, you know. Absolutely. Now, Emily, with your new house and your new arrangement with your partner, what protections did you put in place for yourself around that? And, and you know, did you go on with equal deposits? Did you go on with different deposits? What's the plan if, worst case scenario, separate, all those kind of things? My partner had his KiwiSaver. That was his big chunk of investment. So he's been working really hard on that. So he had 52000 in his KiwiSaver, I believe. And then the rest of the deposit was made up by dad's gift or donation that we kind of worked behind the scenes to work out how that would be taken from our investment property, which was about $115,000. So that's the kind of split between us in terms of what each of us have invested. We pay equally towards the mortgage and all expenses and things like that. So that's all equally shared. I guess it becomes a bit of a conversation between your relationship, doesn't it, in terms of worst case scenario, which no one likes to think about. But at the moment, I we, oh, <laughs> I mean, yes, I suppose, yeah, I suppose if you've been banned in the past as well, then you're more likely to think about that kind of thing. But at the moment, we're just evenly split if anything were to happen. And I guess things would change further down the line once we have a family. And, and there's so many other factors that come into consideration too. But I mean, we've been in the house for a month now so I think we're just enjoying that honeymoon period of home ownership for now. (laughs) So am I right in saying that if worst case scenario split tomorrow when you sell the property you'd take the profits 50-50 but you'd both take back your initial investment? Yes yeah Yeah. that would be the most logical yeah. Yeah that's not documented in a relationship property agreement. 
It is not, but I do have a contracting out agreement with my partner in terms of our investment property between my brother and my dad. So that is all completely separate and that's all squared away. Yeah, and look, it's one of those things that although this is the most unromantic part of property investment or investing with a partner or, or even even a friend or something like that, having these kind of thoughts about how you might want the funds to be divvied up in preparation of something going wrong is the best protection you can have to maintain a friendship if something does go wrong. I always think when it comes to relationship property agreements, my advice is always, or my recommendation is always bring it up early, bring it up often because you <laughs> might because you might discuss something. This happens all the time. You, you might discuss something early on and you both think you know what the story is, but if you never bring it up again, then people's minds change around what was agreed and they might remember it slightly differently. Now, Definitely. Emily, you've been listening to the show for a wee while. What's one thing you've learned, either through the show or through your own experience, that you think other property investors should know? I guess in terms of my personal situation, I know you guys have done a couple of podcasts in terms of, I know you you frame it as kind of the bank of mum and dad kind of thing. I just think it's such an underutilized kind of option to get your foot on the property ladder, as well as investing with your family. I mean, before dad brought it up with us, I wouldn't have even thought of, you know, being a homeowner with my brother. But that's shown like in the last three and a half years, we've done really well and worked really hard together. So it's almost strengthened our family relationship as well. So I think that is something that people should definitely have a conversation around in terms of their family, because it's honestly set us up for such great success in the future and has taught us a lot about not only property, but maintaining and servicing a mortgage and all of those kind of things that come into play that you tend to mine was very overwhelming if you were to do it by yourself. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that people sometimes get a bit disparaged about. You know, you see somebody in the media, you know, and they've a first home buy and they've had a bit of help from their parents, whether that be that they've been able to live at home rent free for a while, or perhaps they got a bit of a, a cash deposit or a gift like you did with your parents. And then you see the comments and stuff, people slating them. Oh, of course, they got help from their parents. But actually, um, mortgage brokers report that about half of first home buyers get some help from the bank of mum and dad. Now, of course, not everybody can use it, and that's fine. You know, not everybody's got access to that. But if you do have the ability, sometimes it's worth a bit of a conversation because you might not realise that, that your parents might be willing to help you out. Totally. I totally agree. And I think it's not talked about enough either in terms of that transparency between people. And, you know, I'm so open with, you know, how Dan helped us and things like that to kind of start the conversation with other people in their family, perhaps. And I mean, there's one thing having the cash deposit and then there's the other thing is servicing the mortgage and dealing with the increase in interest rates and, you know, dealing with payments and flatmates and all that kind of thing. So I feel like the hardness of it is is kind of split into that too that initial deposit and then the serviceability awesome right let's wrap it up there but please don't forget to rate review and subscribe to the podcast really does help us get the message out to more people and hey if you want to come on case study sunday like emily just send me an email editopuspartners.co.nz or even better flick us a message on instagram we are at opus underscore partners listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ed McKnight. And I'm Andrew Nicholl. We're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most out of the new property market. Until next time.